From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about politics on TV in 1968, when Harry Belafonte hosted The Tonight Show for a week, and his guests included Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King, also Aretha Franklin. That story is told now in a new documentary streaming on Peacock, the NBC streaming service. Our Joan Walsh recovered the story and is one of the producers of the documentary. First up, Chris Hayes on the catastrophe of Trump. Of course, Chris is host of All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC weeknights at 8 Eastern. Before he went on TV, he was editor-at-large of The Nation. Recently, he spoke at a Nation magazine event with Katrina Vandenhuvel, publisher and editorial director of the magazine. She asked first about Trump and the pandemic. The first years of the Trump administration, I just think that all the signs were there was that we are, um, we were collectively as a, as a nation, as a people, and also in sort of a global sense, like playing an iterative game of Russian roulette. There was a bullet in the chamber and there was a lot of chambers and maybe we we're going to keep clicking away and we would get through four years without the gun going off. And we didn't. And in some ways that, is not surprising to me. In fact, that seemed clear. In fact, it was remarkable to me um, that there had not been larger catastrophes. And I think the real canary in the coal mine, the moment that I think in some ways a lot of the political conversation moved past it or peril was Maria in Puerto Rico, where we got to see a glimpse of all of the sort of worst pathologies and worst impulses of like denial of the facts, contempt for people that he doesn't view as supporting him, the bigotry and the racism and the lack of crisis management, all that came together. And, you know, thousands of people died in Maria as, as the president was saying that, you know, the death toll was 15 or whatever. So we're now at this crisis point that in some ways was kind of inevitable or faded. Um, there's also a democratic crisis happening um, in, at, at two levels. One is obviously the abuse of power of the president and the sort of um, use of the tools of the state for the purposes of electoral advantage. And it's an interesting thing because that lies on a spectrum between incumbency advantage and outright criminal abuse of power. And uh, everyone uses incumbency advantage, right? The, the bully pulpit and all that. The president has moved that spectrum towards outright abuse of power. And in some ways, the through line of him in elections is cheating. I mean, he, 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 he solicited help uh, in 2016. His, 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 uh, his number one henchman went to jail for a criminal felony committed to evade campaign finance disclosure laws. Cheating. Uh, he is trying to cheat again. Uh, he was impeached because he was trying to cheat. <laughs> all of this is the through line. Like the guy doesn't believe in free and fair elections um, in his core. And so when you, when you add all this up, you know, I, I think the sort of desperate vortex dark feeling that a lot of people have is just staring down into a situation where at both the substantive level, independent of things like democratic health and, and rule of law, the country is objectively in a once in a century catastrophe. More Americans have died in the last four months than in any four months in American history. 
the economic contraction is unrivaled in American history. Um, we are starting to, we're going to start to see cascading effects of this, particularly if money doesn't come through for states and localities, you're going to start to see massive layoffs at the local level. You're going to start to see tightening austerity, cuts to social programs up and down the chain. People are still dying from the virus and there still is no plan to fight it. Um, the University of Alabama has 560 cases in their first week back in Tuscaloosa because they just came back to Tuscaloosa and didn't like, we keep trying the same thing, which is like, well, what if the virus didn't exist and we just went about life normally? And the answer to that is that does not work. Uh, that <laughs> we could try it as many times as we want. It will continue to not work. So all of that together, it does make it feel like we're, we're standing over the edge of something very deep um, and dangerous. And, you know, it's tempting always to ahistoricize, I think, and feel like this election is the most important, this moment is the most important crisis. Um, but I think that if you even in a historical sense, if you take a step back, um, there are a bunch of like macro structural trends that are bigger than Donald Trump that make this one of the most perilous and fraught moments for American democracy. Honestly, I think since the mid 19th century. Next, Chris Hayes took up the question, what is this election really about? Isn't it bigger than Trump? You have now a minority faction of the country that has been governing the country from a minority position and essentially is committed to using its power to lock that in to the extent possible, has given up, largely given up on appealing to a majority of the country. Um, six out of the last seven presidential elections, the Republicans have lost a plurality of the popular vote. If they do it again, seven out of eight, which almost everyone, like, it's hilarious the degree to which that's just a given. Like, no one thinks he's going to win the popular vote. There's, no one's had a worse run <laughs> since the Democratic Party is founded under Andrew Jackson in the 1820s. So that's, that's as bad as it gets. And yet, of course, they control the Supreme Court, they control a tremendous amount of state legislators, and they control the United States Senate, um, and the Electoral College gives them a structural advantage. And as our political polarization has diverged along the lines of uh, structural... I'll get closer to my microphone. As political polarization has emerged along the lines exactly along the lines of a kind of structural imbalance in democratic representation, you have all the tools available for enduring minority rule. And that's what is right now being fought over. That's what's being contested. Um, there's a reason Mitch McConnell spent all his time in this term getting judges confirmed because judges are a anti-majoritarian bulwark that they can kind of retreat behind. Um, as is the United States Senate, as is the Electoral College, and as are gerrymandered uh, state and con congressional districts. And so at a very fundamental level, the, you know, the question in this country from the first moments of the Constitutional Convention is who should rule? And that's the most contested question. And the answer is, well, the people should rule. Well, who's the people? And that battle over who is who constitutes the vote, who constitutes the polity, who constitutes the people is in some ways a sort of central battle of American democracy, um, whether that's slavery, whether that's suffrage, whether that's the full and equal rights of uh, Jim Crow, whether that's LGBT struggle for full citizenship for, for LGBT people to take part in the institution of, of, of legal marriage. Like that is the sort of question. Um, and 
what who controls the levels of uh, levers of power and we're at a very fraught moment where the project could kind of die i mean <laughs> i sound overly grandiose but you know democracies don't just last forever they sometimes they just go downhill um and right now the democratic health of the nation is is very perilous. I would say that the, the, the one thing on the other end, I do think like the street uprisings and the protests of the last four months have been an incredibly hopeful sign um, insofar as some kind of mobilization of that order is, on, is really the only protection. Like if push comes to shove and we get a situation in which we are uncharted constitutional waters and uncharted legal waters, popular protest, people in the streets, a sort of refusal to accede to the whims of the ruler by the people that are ostensibly being governed is, you know, ultimately the kind of last um, bastion of, of small D democracy. Um, and I think people having the muscle memory of doing that is pretty important at this moment. But all this by way of saying, like, I think it's as bad as it looks. <laughs> Then Chris Hayes took up the question of whether we are in an unprecedented situation or whether there are any historical parallels to this election. Something I think about a lot is, which is both hopeful and unhopeful, is the 32 election in Hoover. Early on, I think I tweeted something about, we're about to find out what would happen if Hoover had Fox News. And I think that's Basically right, although I actually think Hoover did a better job managing the first years of the Depression than Donald Trump has done managing the first few months of the pandemic. Um, you know, if you look back, um, the 32 election, of course, is the uh, most iconic blowout of a incumbent uh, in history uh, and, and is not really repeated, I think, until... Uh, Reagan beats Carter in 1980. Hoover got 40% of the vote, 39.75% of the vote in 1932. You know, 40 is basically the lowest it goes. I think Goldwater gets 38 or 39. Like that's, a, that's about the bottom <laughs> of what you can get. The president's approval rating is about 41%. He's polling around 40, 40% in a lot of polls. Like, it, it, now some level you think to yourself, how in the world could be polling at 40%? How can it be the case? But then at the other, it's like, that's about as low as it gets. <laughs> like that's basically, Hoover got 40%. So, you know, it, you, you, you basically can't, it's very hard to get below 40%. Um, so that to me is kind of a, like a useful way of looking at it both as a glass, glass half full and half empty, which is like, holy crap, four out of 10 Americans are like, this is good. I want, I want more of this. I think this is, we should stay on this track. But also that four out of 10 Americans also thought that about Herbert Hoover in 1932. Like, let's keep it going, guys. So, you know, that's just basically, that's your, that's your baseline is four out of 10 people being like, cool. Um, so that I think gives me a little bit of hope, but, but, you know, beyond that, it's like, it's just, it's real dangerous and it's real bad. And, you know, we're not, Things fall apart. Um, sometimes entropy wins. And uh, just 
exercising the muscles of democratic citizenship is basically all we have left. Chris was then asked by a listener, how can progressives push Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on things we think are important? Honestly, I don't like right now. I think to me, this moment is just like so perilous and fraught. And like, I I just think that like defeating Trump in the next 70 days is basically everything. Um, I do. I I just don't like it. it, And, you know, there's going to be a bunch of battles to be had about staffing the administration, which I think really matters a lot. People's policy. And I think who gets in there really will matter a huge amount. I think that, you know, Rahm Emanuel's chief of staff was probably the single biggest setback for <laughs> forces in the Obama administration. Oh. Um, it really mattered a lot that he was the chief of staff. Um, so I think personnel's policy and I think that, that those would be big fights and important fights. Who's in the room? What parts of the coalition are they representing? And then there's going to be fights about prioritization, which, again, are going to be brutal fights. Like, and this thing would drive me crazy about Bernie Sanders every time I interview him. I'd say, well, what are you going to prioritize? Well, oh, we can walk and chew gum. You can do – no, you can't. Like, you can't – literally, definitionally, you can't prioritize everything. The definition of priority is that something comes first. You can't prioritize like and that's true about legislative sequencing it's true about what you put your political capital behind and there's going to be and again if the biden harris ticket comes into the white house they will come in amidst crisis again like it's going to be hard (laughs) um i think you know the, the the big thing to me the two big things to push on the most important things to push on, or three most important things to push on are personnel and policy, forget deficits and austerity, forget it, write it out of your brain, treat the deficit the way Republicans do, we'll deal with it later, just don't worry about it, don't. And then the third thing is like climate, climate, climate. Finally, Chris was asked whether he found anything that was hopeful in our present political situation. What's hopeful is that people like the movements that we've seen in the streets are the largest, basically the largest protest movement in American history, as far as we can tell, like as an empirical matter. I think it's sort of hopeful to think that we're all that can save us because that's not like doesn't put us in position of waiting for some other person to ride in. The other thing that's hopeful is like, again, like I said, 60 percent of the country doesn't freaking like the guy. Like, like we, we are in the majority. We have been in the majority the whole time. We were in the majority in 2016. We're in the majority now. Like, the, 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 the structural features of American constitutional democracy don't mean that you get to rule when you're in the majority. But it is the case that, like, he has lost a majority of the country. He has never governed for a majority of the country. I mean, if we were in a situation where you 60% approval, we would be toast democratically. We would be... Erdogan's Turkey, we, like, it, so, like, don't doubt yourself. You're what can save us in terms of, like, being an active citizen. That means, like, voting, getting other people to vote, volunteering, volunteering for local races, particularly, protesting, um, and also that, like, he's not popular. So don't psych yourself out that he is. We're in one of the most perilous and fraught moments for American democracy since the mid-19th century. What's hopeful is that the movement we've seen in the streets 
is the largest protest movement in American history. That's Chris Hayes in conversation with Katrina Vanden Heuvel for The Nation. You can watch or listen to the full conversation at thenation.com slash events. Return with us now to February 1968. At the height of the Vietnam War and the Tet Offensive, after the long, hot summer of 1967, which saw the largest and deadliest black urban uprisings in American history in Newark and Detroit, the Democratic Party of President Lyndon Johnson was coming apart. That's when Johnny Carson handed The Tonight Show over to Harry Belafonte, who used the show to introduce white America to his world of music and politics. The story has been lost for decades, but was rediscovered by Joan Walsh. She's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. And now we have a feature-length documentary about that amazing week of TV in America. It's called The Sit-In. Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show, and it's running now on Peacock. You remember, that's the new streaming service from NBC. Joan Walsh joins us now. She's one of the two producers. Joan, welcome back, and congrats on this terrific documentary. Thank you so much, John. Well, what you've made here is not just about Belafonte's week hosting The Tonight Show, which is an amazing story. This is also a mini-history of America at the beginning of 1968 with politics in the streets and politics on TV. So let's start by setting the context a little more. America in February 1968. Martin Luther King is still alive. Bobby Kennedy hasn't been assassinated yet. The political primary season is about to begin. That's when anti-war forces hope to challenge LBJ. And that's when Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show for a week. It's really an amazing story. I mean, we don't think of Johnny Carson as somebody who was political, although he, you know, he did show some liberal leanings in, in the 60s and 70s around the war and certainly around civil rights. But Johnny did something very political. He gave his show to Harry Belafonte for a week. And, you know, he, he was famously kind of jealous, rivalrous, protective of his time. So he would give guest hosts a night. Nobody got a week. If he was away for a week, there were five guest hosts. Uh, but he gave it to Harry for a week. And he really did understand that it was a pivotal time in our history, but he was just not the right guy to you know, say, I'm going to do a week on what's happening in civil rights. I guess the other thing that I didn't appreciate when I first came to the story was, it was also a really great idea in terms of ratings. I mean, we, you know, you and I are of a certain age, we sort of remember, but we, even we don't totally remember what a huge star Belafonte was. So it wasn't just like, oh, this nice, you know, political gesture. It was also a shrewd uh, entertainment move because he was really somebody that even your Republican uncle would tune in to watch. Harry Belafonte had been a superstar in in music, acting, and in some, on some TV for a decade at least. We didn't know at that point, those of us who were around, who he was in movement politics. And that's one of the important things we learn from your documentary. 
Yes. He's the guy, for instance, who got all the celebrities to come to the March on Washington. He put together a huge fundraiser uh, for the, the third and final and successful Selma march to Montgomery in 65. He tells a story of, of him and Sidney Poitier actually flying down to Mississippi during Freedom Summer, right after the murder of the three civil rights workers with, with bail money for other kids and just support and getting chased by the Klan. I mean, it, it was serious activism, putting his body on the line repeatedly. So the most important thing historically about this week of The Tonight Show was the political talk. What for you were the political highlights of that week? Well, of course, the most important thing was that Bobby Kennedy and Dr. King were his guests. They each have a half-hour interview. And strangely, it, that those are the only two interviews that are preserved. NBC used to just tape over The Tonight Show night after night, uh, but those somehow survived. They were, they were confused. They were profoundly confused by The Times. Harry tells us in the film... I thought I had a scoop, as you journalists would say, that I was going to get Bobby to say he was declaring for president uh, on my show, but he wouldn't do it. And, and in fact, he sounds like he's not going to do it. And that very week, he told reporters that he wasn't doing it. And on the show, he's like, my views on Vietnam, you know, and, and he actually says a war that my administration took part in, speaking of his brother, my views are, are a minority, which actually was not true. And, and Dr. King is starting the Poor People's Campaign. He's moving from civil rights to general economic rights and poverty issues. He is really besieged by left and right. The Black left, Black nationalists, younger people were upset that he was leaving the issues of, of Black people for the issues of poor people. And the, the centrists were upset that he had come out against the war. He is a besieged figure trying to figure out where to go next. And it wasn't just politics that week. Late night shows, of course, then as now, had lots of live musical performances. There were some pretty remarkable ones that uh, Belafonte put on. Yeah, and you know, the only entertainment that that exists is the folk singer Leon Bibb singing Suzanne. And I had no idea who Leon Bibb was. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm that young. Um, <laughs> and then when I started doing research, I mean, he was, a, he was mentored by Paul Robeson. He was blacklisted. He was very close to Harry. And it was one of those really brave things that Harry did. And Leon Bibb sings Suzanne, a version of Suzanne that will just break your heart. Uh, but then there are the big names, you know, Aretha, Dionne Warwick, who we do interview, Tula Clark, who we also interview, Buffy St. Marie, who we interview. We just missed Diane Carroll. We were working on that. I mean, Tula Clark practically faints thinking about being on the couch with Sidney Poitier, which we don't have. <laughs> um, and so... It, yes, he really he really set out to make it a very entertaining week, not just a politically enlightening one. He knew what he was doing. Now, to get back to Martin Luther King for a minute, it turns out we learn from the documentary that Harry Belafonte 
This is not just inviting an important person to be on the show. This is somebody who he has been working with for more than a decade. Harry had been approached by Dr. King back in the 50s. Dr. King was, again, you know, a really shrewd judge of the culture and really tuned into how entertainers, particularly black entertainers, could make a difference. And so he reached out to a lot of them, but, but Harry very early on. Uh, and, and Harry says, you know, once we connected, my life was never separate from his to this day, really. He did benefit concerts for him. He and Aretha did concerts together in 1967 for Dr. King. Dr. King was, you know, his North Star. And, and Taylor Branch, the great, great historian and King biographer, explains that, you know, Harry had good relationships with all of the civil rights movement, including the young radicals and including people who thought, you know, violence might be necessary, the kinds of debates that we're, that we're still having now. And it was Dr. King's influence that just kept, at the, you know, and Harry would say this, that just kept him as angry as he could be, as radical as he was, he stayed with nonviolence because that made sense to him morally and psychologically. And of course, the reason that NBC did not put black people on late night TV as hosts is that they were afraid of the ratings, that white people didn't want to watch black people on TV. How did this show do? Did people watch? The ratings surpassed Johnny's. Harry said that, but we were like, okay, let's make sure that's true. And it was true, not just in New York, but nationwide. It was really a big deal, you know, and, you, and we, we dug up some clips, newspaper clips and, and uh, reviews of the time. It got a lot of coverage, obviously in places like Jet and Ebony, where it was big news. But, you know, the New York Times, Newsweek, Time, uh, small regional papers, uh, we got some, we dug up some nasty coverage, you know, calling it a minstrel show. Uh, but for the most part, it was, the, the coverage was, was incredibly laudatory with a, with a few barbs about, you know, he might've gone too far with his Vietnam War criticism. Aside from that, it was like Aretha, Dion, you know, just a, a, amazing, amazing entertainment. Well, let's take a step back to the rediscovery of this story. I have to say, I was alive and paying attention to politics in 1968. I don't have any memory of this. I know that you didn't know anything about it. How did you discover the story, which then became a, a, an article for The Nation? It was hiding in plain sight. Harry wrote about it. Harry devoted a chapter on it in his memoir, My Song, and I, which I read in like 20, early 2013. It just, he brought it to life, but I was like, how do I not know about this? You know, how did I not hear my parents in the living room, you know, shrieking and, and, and subsequently, how do we not, how do we not talk about this all the time? And so I became borderline obsessed. And I mean, Katrina Vanenhuvel will tell you a story. She remembers me telling her about this, that I wanted to make a documentary about this before I came to the nation, which was 2015 when I came to the nation. And 
I just, I couldn't get it off the ground. I don't, I'm not, I don't know how to make a documentary. I'm not, I don't have those contacts. So I just decided I would do the next best thing and do what I can do, which is write about it. So I did a, a long piece for the nation and Joy Reid of MSNBC read it and asked me to come on her show. And at the end of our segment, she said, sis, this is a documentary, you know? And I'm like, uh, hello. Yeah, I do know, but I, I don't know how to do that. And so she and I got it going. And that was actually, that was only three and a half years ago, which when you think about it, that's not that, that long. When you talk about documentary years, like actively working on it, but yeah, it started in the nation. Most people, I think it's fair to say, like you and me, didn't know anything about this. But it turns out that at least some black people remember vividly seeing it at the time. One of them was Henry Louis Gates. Yes, Henry Louis Gates did a profile of Harry for The New Yorker. Uh, I think it was 1996. And he led his, the, the, the profile. And that's in, Harry, in Harry's book, too, talking about being a teenager, being a high school student in West Virginia and getting to stay up late to see this black man take over, you know, the biggest seat in television at the time and what an impression it made on his life. Uh, you know, another person that I love everyone that we talked to in the film, it was just the greatest experience of my life. One of my favorites is Bobby Rivers, who used to be a VH1, whatever, whatever they call VJ or, you know, and, and also an, an interviewer. Uh, you know, did a lot, did a lot of uh, specials, uh, worked for other networks uh, as a, as a movie critic and movie, you know, a, a celebrity interviewer. And he remembers he was a, you know, teenager in Watts. Uh, and he remembers watching it and, and having it change his sense of what was possible for him. That, you know, he wasn't necessarily the best singer or dancer or, you know, leading man but he could be an interviewer and he could actually bring his intellect to television and the coverage of the culture. So, you know, there are so many people out there like that, that, we're, that I'm starting to hear from as this gets publicized. And that's really moving. So let's talk for a minute about what's happened to late night TV since that historic week. This is one of the subjects of the documentary. Uh, the Tonight Show, even though it set records for an audience with a black host and black guests. After uh, Johnny left, we had Jay Leno. Now we have Jimmy Fallon. Uh, of course, late night TV has become a liberal bastion of jokes about Trump, uh, but it's still almost exclusively white, except, of course, for Comedy Central, which isn't a network, it's a cable show. Right. Um, but Tre Trevor Noah matters, and I think it's interesting that Trevor has really found his audience and his voice in this political crisis. You know, at first it, it felt like Trevor was not trying to be the, you know, the black late night host. And now he's like, screw it. I'm the black late night host, y'all. So yeah, I mean, it, it's ridiculously white. I mean, you know, Robin Thede, who is an amazing comic and writer, uh, who has a, an HBO show that's now on hiatus with everything else, the black lady sketch show, which is hilarious. Um, she, you know, she had a, a BET late night special for a little over a year. I mean, and Robin and others, I mean, Whoopi Goldberg had a, had a show. Robin and others make the point that, you know, white guys are given a long time to find their audience. You know, I love Stephen Colbert, second to none, love him. When he got The Late Show, 
he didn't do well. And he's now, he's found his audience. He's found his voice. Guy, white guys get, get the chance to, to do that. It took months and they gave him months. They said, you know, we don't care if he gets low ratings. Yeah, we, we are investing in you. We know you can do it. And black people don't get that opportunity. You know, Arsenio Hall, we go from 1968 with Harry Belafonte to the late 80s with Arsenio Hall. And, and he didn't get that many years, even though it was a rating success. Uh, so, yeah, it's really, it, it's still, we still need a reckoning in late night. And we still need more diverse hosts and, and more black hosts. If, if Jimmy Fallon asked me what he should do with his show for a week, I would say either give it to Joy Reid, uh, give it to John Legend, give it to Robin Thede. You know, these are people who have the contacts, the connections in the world of entertainment as well as politics and have a worldview that is about getting more people to understand that what, what's really at stake in terms of race relations in America right now. Last question. What was it like for you to work with Harry Belafonte on this? He was, I think, over 90 when you interviewed him. I have to say he's totally sharp in your on-screen interviews with him. He's totally sharp. He forgets things, but, you know, so do you and I. So um, he was he was amazing and he was so generous with his with his time, uh, with his connections. At some point, we were having a hard time getting people, you know, to, to interview. And he wrote a letter to a bunch of people on our list and said, you know, look, this is a project that really matters to me. And I would really appreciate if you you know, gave these, gave these women and all women, all women team. Yoruba Richin is our director. Valerie Thomas is my co-producer, my dear friend. Joy Reed's an executive producer, our, our editor, our associate producer, our associate editor, all women. Um, we have a, a male composer, African-American man. But he was just incredible with, with his time. And, and I, you know, I also have to thank his wife, Pamela, because she you know, did a lot of the scheduling and, and just made, made things happen and is still making things happen. So it's, it was really rewarding. So in February 1968, Harry Belafonte had Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King as his guests on The Tonight Show. It was one of the last hopeful moments of that decade. Of course, in the next four months, both King and Kennedy were assassinated. Darkness and despair descended on, on us few months after that, Nixon was elected president. And all that is told in the documentary, too. Through it all, Harry Belafonte was the heart and brains of so much of the civil rights movement of the 60s. That's one of the things you learn from the sit-in. Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show, a powerful and moving documentary that started as an article in The Nation. It's running now on Peacock, the new streaming service from NBC, Joan Walsh recovered the story. She's one of the producers. She's also terrific on screen. Joan, thank you for this film, and thanks for talking with us today. Oh, thank you, John. My pleasure. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. 
You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. We'll be right back.